Episode 48 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 10.1, Summary of Military Lessons. Why is conflict, or war, important in the scriptures? For most of Christianity, Christ is emphasized as a man of peace and a person of love without judgment. The idea of a God or a Savior who would allow war is a philosophical challenge for many. However, war as a teaching tool and metaphor is used throughout the scriptures. Military imagery and vocabulary infuse sacred hymns as well as sacred texts. I cannot say that I know all of the reasons for this, but there are several that are clear. One is that war represents a time of societal stress that tends to lead people to polarizing solutions, as emphasized by Mormon in Alma chapter 62, verses 39 to 41. Another is that war brings out either the best of selflessness or the worst of moral atrocity, complete unity or total disunity and disintegration. It serves as a crucible of people, peoples, and cultures. Finally, to achieve success in war or battle requires vision, discipline, determination, purpose, and unity. Why did Mormon specifically emphasize Moroni's command experience over his own? Mormon's metaphor was about the importance of unity, covenants, and personal and collective preparation to defeat Satan. Mormon's army failed to demonstrate these points and, as a result, the civilization was destroyed, whereas Moroni's armies did demonstrate these points and they always, or nearly so, won. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This final part of this podcast series is a compilation of temporal and spiritual lessons learned. This is designed to demonstrate how the details presented by Mormon and illuminated in this series may be applied in a very real and personal way by individuals and leaders. The intent of these lessons is to assist in the personal application and not to prescribe a specific interpretation. This is a way to use what has been presented rather than the way. There is a need to make a summary or catalog of the lessons learned from a military history standpoint. What are the trends that are evident in the Nephite military traditions, and what are those that were emphasized by Mormon himself? Even in this episode, there is great opportunity for application as those details most emphasized were done for a beneficial reason and not on a whim. The next and final episode includes the spiritual applications based on each of the three main points of emphasis for Mormon unity, covenants, and preparation. The title of this episode is a little inaccurate. I remind the listener that this podcast series is not about studying war and warfare for their own sakes. The lessons offered here are those that I believe are informative for everyone's sake. In 1935, as part of his report as the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, 
General Douglas MacArthur expressed the following, quote, The military student does not seek to learn from history the minutiae of method and technique. In every age, these are decisively influenced by the characteristics of weapons currently available and by the means at hand for maneuvering, supplying, and controlling combat forces. But research does bring to light those fundamental principles and their combinations and applications which, in the past, have been productive of success. These principles know no limitation of time. Consequently, the Army extends its analytical interest to the dust-buried accounts of wars long past as well as to those still reeking the scent of battle. It is the object of the search that dictates the field for its pursuit. Close quote. The words of Douglas MacArthur ring true for the student of the Book of Mormon. The object of the search in the case of this podcast series has been to illuminate Mormon's use of armed conflict to teach the readers of the Book of Mormon how to come unto Christ and stand pure and confident before his judgment seat. It was also to provide a detailed look at specific armed conflict events. The Book of Mormon is a great ancient military history. Throughout the narrative of the Book of Mormon, and as elaborated in the preceding 47 episodes, we have been treated to several fantastic battle narratives with high-quality details and cause-and-effect analysis. In this episode, the focus is on trends and looking at the trends so presented rather than on each lesson or military detail. The record provided by Mormon and his son Moroni contains six periods of emphasis on conflict. Each of these periods presents the reader with details about the conflict of that time. The periods are Xenophyte, Amlicite War, Amalekiahite War, Gadian Robber War, post-visit wars, and the Jaredite Wars. These are periods that receive emphasis, but as discussed at the beginning of this podcast series, they are not the only periods of conflict, nor are they necessarily the most important periods from a geopolitical standpoint, with the exception of the post-visit wars, which clearly served as spiritually, historically, politically, and militarily important. Mormon selected these specific periods of conflict for the lessons they teach us rather than for their historical importance, though, as noted, they might also have been historically important. Within these periods, Mormon teaches his readers about the weapons, armor, fortifications, organization, tactics, and strategies of the opposing forces. Over the course of the five periods, excluding the Jaredites, as they were included by Moroni after Mormon's death, Mormon expressed a continuum of change and development. There was a progression of violence and organization. This was noted in Episode 3, or Part 1.2 of this series. We see the progression from raids to offensive battles to campaigns of conquest and finally to conquest and state destruction. The defensive strategies also progressed from simple walls and fortifications around cities to the use of walls and fortifications to deter opponents and to shape potential battlefields. One of the great lessons throughout the Book of Mormon is that of applied history, 
as we can see in Mormon's autobiographical portion, the differences between his experiences as a young commander without the benefit of historical hindsight and insight, and later as a more seasoned commander who called upon the lessons of past generals. Preparation Preparation is one of the three focal elements of Mormon. In this area are some of the greatest details. Mormon seemingly wanted us to understand how important the physical and intellectual preparations were for battlefield success. Armor Armor played an important role in Mormon's Book of Mormon narrative, as its ideal implementation generated shock when viewed by the Lamanites in the First Battle of Jershon, as I refer you back to Episode 20 or Part 5.1 of this series. The benefits of armor were touted both at the Battle of Manti, also discussed in Episode 20, and the Second Battle of Noah, discussed in Episode 26 or Part 6.1 as the men of Moroni in the Battle of Manti and Lehi II at the Second Battle of Noah were generally unscathed except for those areas without armor protection. Understanding the use of armor is also a great vehicle for understanding the transfer of ideas and technology from one people to another, as first the opponent and later dissenters learned from the Nephites or brought the technologies over with them when they left. Technological advantage usually lasted less than a generation in Book of Mormon warfare, typically the time between dissensions. The men of Moroni, those for whom we have the greatest detailed description of their armor, represented those men most protected in the account. This may have been a poetic device as they served as Mormon's paragons of spiritual martial values. The armor did evolve throughout the first half of the record, from simple clothing to shields to multifaceted and overlapping segments of armor from head to legs with additional shields carried and worn on the arms. It is quite probable that this fact is also one of poetic instruction as Mormon sought to express the need for continual strengthening and developing of our armor meaning that we cannot rely, as did those of ages past, on the same tried and true coats of armor. We need to develop better armor designed to fight the threats we face today. Fortification Fortifications began as protection for cities. Though we have little information on the fortifications built in the land of Nephi, though we know that the Zenophites lived in a city with walls, these forms of communal protection developed over time, as did the armor designed for personal protection. The Lamanite opponent only had fortified cities when they captured those cities fortified by the Nephites. The Lamanites did not have a need for fortifications as they generally fought offensive campaigns. The only example of a Nephite offensive to conquer Lamanite cities was that led by the bloodthirsty man against whom Zenith fought, as described in Mosiah chapter 9, and discussed in episode 11 or part 3.1. The greatest descriptions of fortifications come in the days of Moroni, as was explained in episode 21 or part 5.2. In Alma chapter 50 in specific, and through the stories of Moroni and his other commanders, Mormon provides an excellent description of a multi-layered defense of ditches, berms, walls, pickets, and towers. 
This was a defensive system that was developed through success and during times of peace and stability. No doubt this stands at the heart of Mormon's lesson. We must fortify when we are blessed and not wait until we are attacked. Mormon expressed that Moroni was not universally popular, but that his success and leadership in this effort brought additional followers. The need for variety in our protection is essential, as is the importance of dedicating time and resources to developing that protection when the threat is non-existent. Forethought provides the greatest protection. Mormon enjoyed his greatest success as a commander when he followed Moroni's example and prepared during the truce periods. He successfully defended against superior numbers in several defensive positions in nearly every war in which he commanded. In every case, except in the final war, he prepared in times of peace and usually without warning. Mormon's instruction on this matter came from a personal testimony of its efficacy. Weapons. Much like armor, Mormon told us over and over again of how people fought with a variety of weapons. Several times he used a phrase like weapons of every kind to express the fact that the people had variety in terms of purpose and type of weapons. The most common delineations were that of melee and missile weapons. This is a simple lesson in the fact that we need to be able to engage the opponent early on and continue to engage in depth. We do not simply hack away at the opponent in front of us, but we also attack the opponents in the rear ranks. This achieves an effect similar to surrounding the opponent without having to physically surround them. This emphasis on variety also ensures that all talents are used in the engagement, not just those strong and able to crush with a club, but the smaller and faster may be able to engage with the sling and stone. The same is true in all of our organizations. There is a need for people with all types of abilities. The different types of weapons also have a significance in terms of responding to different types of assaults forced upon us by the adversary. At times, we must face him close up, and at other times, we are able to see him coming and to keep him at bay through various means at our disposal. We need different weapons to succeed in different circumstances. Weapons also denote offensive action. The battle for ourselves and others is not waged by simply fortifying ourselves, but it is fought by going out to meet the enemy and destroying him on the field of battle. That means we must be armed with spiritually lethal weapons, the greatest of which is the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of Revelation. Spies Spies played an essential role in many of the key battles. Zenith introduced the idea and role of a spy. He used spies to understand the intent of his opponent. Of course, he himself had been a spy. Alma, too, followed that example, and his greatest military feat was made possible by the intelligent application of spies on the battlefield. Moroni was rarely surprised because of his use of spies. The rare times where Moroni was surprised came in times of disunity when the ability to use spies was hindered by internal conflict. This is a critical lesson on the importance of knowing the intent and plans of the enemy. 
In the modern world where militaries place great emphasis on intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, we also enjoy the blessing of having great insight into the mind of Satan and knowledge of his plans. Never before in the history of man have the sons and daughters of God had so much access to the records of the prophets, nor has there been such access to the spoken words of living apostles and prophets. It is possible to read and know the counsel and guidance of the Lord through numerous sources. All of this is in addition to the power of personal revelation through the gift of the Holy Ghost. All of this revelation serves as our personal spies, giving us the insight into the mind of our opponent so that we can effectively fortify and act. Order the Army It is not enough to simply fortify and meet the enemy with a completely armored force, but the army must be gathered and organized in an effective and useful manner. This is the principle of unity so often referred to throughout the record. It is also a supporting principle of order. Ancient Greek hoplites could never have been successful fighting like Roman legionnaires, nor could Parthian horse archers have succeeded in fighting like Frankish knights. Each force needed to organize and fight as was best determined for them. The same is true for us as we are taught by Mormon. Gather forces. Mormon concluded his record with a battle where all the Nephites were gathered together in a single place, Camorra. This battle did not go so well for the Nephites, but earlier accounts of this behavior, both within Mormon's command experience and elsewhere in the record, mark this as one of the key lessons. Mormon's most significant successes came after he gathered the people together. One of the greatest battles against the robbers, as detailed in episode 43 or part 7.6, was when the Nephites and Lamanites formed in a single consolidated settlement. The idea of gathering people together in unity was crucial to victory in Mormon's record. The lesson is not only the need to gather all together in unity, but also to gather all the human resources possible for the struggle ahead. For example, at the Battle of Manti, Moroni gathered local people to assist in the battle. Moroni also spent a great deal of effort in freeing those held prisoner by the Lamanites, and he used those prisoners wisely who surrendered to him. Place in Ranks The phrase, place in ranks, came from Zenef's experience as a commander. It is uncertain whether other Nephite commanders ordered their army in such a way, but Mormon gave us this small window into the military organization for combat, and therefore it must have had meaning for them as well as for us. Though it is unclear how Zenef placed his warriors in ranks, the lesson for us can be clear. This is about a system of order. Everyone has their place on the battlefield. One might be a general, a slinger, or simply a foot soldier. Regardless of one's position in the battle line, it is necessary for one to stand firm and strengthen those around him or her. Be in the right place. The lesson to be in the right place is one for both leaders and commanders, as well as for the army as a whole. I want to first address the point of the army being in the right place. It is important for the army to be in a position where it can affect the outcome of the battle. 
As discussed in episode 3 or part 1.2 and elsewhere in this series, not all ancient intended battles were battles. For a large-scale battle to be fought in the ancient world, there usually needed to be mutual consent of commanders. Both sides had to agree on the ideas of where and when to fight. This meant that if there was a desire to catch the opposing commander by surprise, as happened repeatedly in the record we have just surveyed, the commanders had to have had their armies in the right place to be able to bring about decisive action. Certainly, this was aided by terrain that would cause the opponent to travel certain paths, but it was difficult for an army on foot to chase down another army. The lesson is that we need to be positioned where the Lord can use us to move against the enemy. The second part of this lesson relates specifically to commanders. Mormon mentioned several times the important role that a commander in the right place performed. Whether it was Lehi II or Moroni leading men at Manti or Tiancum affecting the outcome of a battle by seeking immediate decision by fighting the opposing commander, the role of a leader was essential to Mormon. Alma II is one of the singular examples of this as he was a conspicuous leader throughout the battles and his personal actions were instrumental in changing and affecting the outcome of the battles as mentioned in Alma chapter 2, verses 27 to 35, and discussed in episode 18, or part 4.3 of this series. This lesson is simple in that leaders need to more than just be present when the battle is fought, but they also need to be at the right place on the battlefield, a place where a leader can be seen and where the leader will make a difference. Strengthen the army. The role and importance of the leaders in Mormon's estimation was also stated through his emphasis on leaders who encouraged their warriors during the actual fighting. These commanding figures regularly pointed the men toward the reasons and purposes of the fighting to strengthen their resolve and to harden their will and determination. For us, the message is clear. It is not enough to send the army into the fight. They need leadership during the fighting, while in the midst of the battle itself. This can be likened to the very purposes of regular counseling, ministering, and the gift of discernment. When someone is personally fighting, one may need to be reminded why the battle is worthwhile. The same is true for leading ourselves through difficult times. One needs to reflect and establish key points, values, and principles for which the battle is worthwhile. Why sacrifice so much? The blessings of eternal relationships and a fullness of joy are some of the reasons that we need to cling to, to remind us of the purpose of such sacrifices when we are tempted to weaken. These were some of the same reasons used by Nephite commanders throughout the record to strengthen their armies in the middle of battles. Head the enemy. Block progress. Over and over, Nephite captains led a force to head the enemy, and by so doing, the enemy was then brought to battle. To fight a moving opponent, especially in ancient times, it is first necessary to stop the opponent. The challenge is the risk and effort involved. It is difficult for one army to outpace another army and then turn and fight with sufficient ferocity 
to force the enemy to stop. Tiancum was probably the first and most significant example of these traits as he chased Morianton and his people down, as expressed in Alma chapter 50, verses 35 to 36, and discussed in episode 25 or part 5.6. Tiancum again headed Amalekiah and fought a larger opponent and forced him to turn back in Alma 51, 28 to 32, and discussed in episode 28 or part 6.3. When fighting spiritual battles, we must stop the progress of Satan before we can effectively engage him and his forces. This will allow the discussion to actually revolve around the meaning and repercussions of the issue rather than the typical fight over words, definitions, and emotions. The scriptures sometimes give this daring and difficult task in a simple light because the phrase is short. All he did was head the enemy. This was and is dramatic and required tremendous risk to the entire army. We cannot be surprised when this is one of the most difficult things we do. Surround the enemy. It is possible that this single lesson is one of the most common in the Book of Mormon military history narrative, to surround the enemy. The benefit of such a plan in ancient times cannot be overstated. Surrounding the enemy allowed the friendly force to engage the enemy force from every side and forced the enemy to fight against every angle or direction. As such, this tended to place a tremendous amount of psychological stress on an enemy army and usually led to the emotional collapse of the army through the destruction of the opponent's will. This tactic within Nephite military history tended to require the combined application of several moving pieces. A lot of times, Nephite commanders sent out a separate command to either lead the opponent out or to head the opponent in their movement, departure, or retreat. This usually took on the role of heading the enemy and acquired all of the attendant risks. This force also had to be sufficiently strong to prevent the enemy from simply breaking through and also needed to have a leader of sufficient maturity and capability to clearly understand the importance of the mission. In such a mission, the other commanders needed to bring their forces into the fight before the opponent could mass all of its force against the Nephites heading them. The complexity of surrounding on the battlefield is often underestimated when I hear this discussed in church classes. In our modern world of computer strategy games, we have great sight and understanding of the battlefield, and we command forces with single-minded unity, without the challenges of communicating orders to other thinking commanders over distances and time. Ancient battlefields were often confused places of near-complete chaos. The ability to communicate clearly and securely was always in question. The ability of the Nephites to do this time and again demonstrated the importance of the principle of unity through a combination of people working from separate places to achieve a united effect. Most of the spectacular victories discussed from the Book of Mormon were achieved through this simple principle. As the combination of multiple forces in time and space teaches unity of purpose and action, the ability of multiple commanders to see a common situation and then to act, though separated, 
is a great demonstration of the blessings that can come from the honoring and upholding of covenants. It is probable that Moroni, a man known for his emphasis on covenant making, might have had his subordinate commanders covenant to keep the plans that were laid out before them prior to the battle, and this covenant helped strengthen the resolve of all the peer commanders to maintain their honor to the plan as directed. Though this is supposition, it fits well within the common focus of Mormon's metaphor and within the known personality traits of Mormon and Moroni. The instruction is the emphasis on bringing all resources to bear against an opponent from all angles. When a person is suffering under the burdens of sin or simply the challenges of life, a single assisting approach should not be the primary solution. We have been counseled to use counsels in the church to solve problems for just this purpose. The need to solve spiritual problems from all angles simultaneously is clear in Mormon's instruction. Go against the enemy in the strength of the Lord. Fortifications and armor are essential to protecting people and their families, but it is not in the Lord's plan that we remain safe behind those fortifications nor that we should remain like a turtle pulled within the shell. The lessons from Mormon state we must, after we have prepared ourselves, go forth and face the enemy and fight as moved upon by the Spirit. Victory in the fight comes through engagement and in the strength of the Lord. Wars are not won through defensive action alone. Though this may blunt and slow and temporarily halt the progress of the enemy, it is necessary for the army to take the battle to the enemy and defeat or destroy the opposing army. Mormon expressed this clearly when he both expounded upon and praised defensive preparations and then also recorded that the army left those defensive works to fight without the formally mentioned protections. I have regular discussions with my students at the Command and Staff College about this very point. Can you win only in the defense? U.S. Army doctrine is a part of Western military thought that I and others refer to as the cult of the offense. It believes that victory only comes in the offense and that the defense only exists in weakness and to allow an army to properly prepare itself to go on the offense. As a natural contrarian, I tend to disagree with statements or thinking so absolute. There are several examples in history where one army has forced the culmination of its opponent while in the defense. Culmination means that an army can no longer continue its effort. I want to offer that this is what I believe Mormon teaches, that we need to culminate the enemy while we're in the defense, and only then should we take to the offense. This is why we are counseled to stand in holy places, or to put on the whole armor of God, or to fortify our positions. It is in such a holy place, as we use the strength of the defense, which is almost universally understood to be the stronger form of war, from which we can culminate our opponent such that we can attack in our strength and against our opponent's weakness. I believe Mormon wanted us to know that Satan cannot be conceded the field of battle, that he cannot be given everything outside the protected enclaves. This would be akin to granting Satan everything outside the temple grounds. 
This is not the Lord's plan. Satan must be challenged, but only when we are walking in direct concert with the Holy Ghost and therefore going forward with the strength of the Lord. Remind the army of the purpose. In many ways, this may be similar to strengthening the army, but there is a nuanced and important difference. Mormon repeatedly emphasized the importance of purpose in combat, specifically to protect the people in their covenants and to ensure the safety of those who cannot defend themselves. The purpose was not to destroy other human beings. This was not killing for the sake of killing, nor was it warfare for the sake of warfare. In this regard, the warriors of Christ are not warriors at all as they do not exist to fight wars, but rather they are soldiers of Christ because they exist to fight for ideals and principles. The 11th article of faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a hallmark of this principle in that it states in part, quote, We claim to allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may, close quote. The idea of fighting without the intent to ensure the enemy's personal destruction is currently rare in public discourse, where so much centers around personal attacks. Mormon wanted us to understand why we are fighting, and he consistently reminded us that once the reason for the fighting has ended, the fighting must stop. In addition, he emphasized the need for forgiveness, as evidenced in a willingness to welcome back as equals all those who repent and enter into the same covenants we have entered. Truly, one of the most remarkable lessons demonstrated in the Book of Mormon is the capacity of those living righteously to accept the repentance of those whom they had recently been fighting. The enemy leaves the battlefield unarmed. Even though an enemy may capitulate, it is not enough to accept their surrender. The enemy must repent as well. In these cases, repentance was demonstrated through the enemy leaving the battlefield after having laid down their weapons. The symbolic nature of this act was crucial then as now, since the weapons themselves were in many cases symbols and easy to regain. Think about the troubles the Nephites had in guarding and moving unruly prisoners, as explained in Alma chapter 57, verses 13 to 14, 18, and 28 to 36, and discussed in episode 32 or part 6.7. The prisoners used sticks as clubs, and these weapons were readily available from the wilderness through which they journeyed. Yes, Moroni and other commanders made their opponents give up their weapons, knowing that they could have crudely fashioned spears and clubs within a few meters of the position where their swords were laid down. The point was not one of logistical denial, but one of principle. You do not leave the battlefield with the same weapons you brought to it. This is true for us. Those who struggle and fight against Christ in personal or collective battles also need to abandon the tools of their fighting once they have come to see the light of the gospel message. Too often, people cling to weapons after facing their sins only to sin again once they have left the battlefield. The weapons must remain at the site of repentance, and the repentant need to move with Christ unarmed 
before the majesty of his spirit. Covenants matter. The strength of the sons of Helaman was real, as we discussed in episode 30 or part 6.5. This was not a metaphor. They had that strength because of their faith. It is essential that people realize that faith has real and tangible power. It is a power that can be felt and harnessed. This was true of the sons of Helaman, but it was also true of a great many other righteous soldiers and commanders who fought in the battles of the Book of Mormon. The critical point is that we need to develop that faith in ourselves and in our children. Like the other lessons discussed in this episode, this is not an innate trait, nor is it one that is easy to acquire. It must be developed and encouraged over a lifetime. The success of the women who trained their boys to become the soldiers who served with Helaman II was as important as the success of those young men on the field of battle. This concept receives further coverage in the final episode as well. We need to emphasize, teach, and express the blessings, strength, and power that comes from faithful adherence to our covenants. This is real power. New Testament scholars spend a great deal of time in expounding on the details of the parables used by Jesus Christ. There are lessons that emphasize the size of a mustard seed, the distance from Jerusalem to Jericho, the nature of seeds, the behavior of sheep and shepherds, and so many other aspects of everyday life included in the teachings of Christ. Why is so much effort expended on these details? I think the answer is to help the listener to better understand the context of what Jesus was saying. Jesus taught in a manner that the people of his day understood. He used terms and subjects that were common to his listeners, but are at the same time foreign to most Christians today. The purpose behind those parables remains central to the eternal purpose of Christ, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, as stated in Moses 1.39. The details help one to better see what one needs to do to enjoy and access the blessings promised through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the same reason students of the New Testament study the details of Levantine agricultural and pastoral life, students of the Book of Mormon should study the details of armed conflict. Mormon used armed conflict, a topic he knew well, and one that he probably expected his audience to know as well. In the same manner that Jesus used the sheep and seeds of his parables, remember that Mormon was aware of the conflict that would exist in the days when the Book of Mormon would come forth. As such, armed conflict must have seemed extremely appropriate to emphasize those principles he deemed most essential for his readers to enjoy the blessings of eternal life, preparation, covenants, and unity. The next episode further illuminates the spiritual lessons from studying war in the Book of Mormon and seeks to provide a conclusion to this journey. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, war in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.